0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty,
1: Steve, in his prayer a moment ago, mentioned that we are a small church. One day, I was walking with Elder Ward. Actually, we were leaving his hotel room, and we were walking down the stairs... I was behind him and I made mention that GCA is just a small church. Those were my words. We're just a small church. And he turned around on his heel and he put his finger up in my face and he said do you worship a small god? And I said no sir. He said then you're not a small church. The first week of June will be our 21st Anniversary here at GCA as a public church in this building. Over those 21 years, we have seen several different churches of various different sizes here in Smyrna, Tennessee rise up and then disappear. And yet we're still here because we worship a big God who has taken care of us these 21 long years. going on, I mean literally, genuinely, I have no idea what's going on, and before you judge me for having said that, you don't have any idea what's going on either, Mm -hmm. turn this morning to 2 Kings, we're going to start in the book of 2 Kings, because we're going to talk this morning about what's going on in the spiritual realm That is far beyond any of our knowledge. I really enjoy 2 Kings chapter 6. I really enjoy this story. I find a great deal of reassurance in this story. But it also demonstrates to me that I just don't know anything. I don't really understand what's going on all around me all the time. And either do you. We're going to start reading in verse 8, 2 Kings 6, verse 8. The king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass through this place, for the Arameans are coming down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him, and thus he warned him, so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. In other words, the Arameans are trying to attack Israel, but the prophet of Israel keeps telling the king of Israel where the enemies of Israel are encamped, which makes the king of Aram very frustrated. Verse 11 says, now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, he thinks he's got a traitor in his camp. Who is constantly telling the king of Israel what our plans are? Verse 12, and one of his servants said, no, my lord, O king, but Elisha The prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. In other words, God keeps telling the king of Israel what's going on, what you're planning to do, anybody who might attack him because God is looking out for Israel. So he said, go and see where he is so that I may send and take him. In other words, I'm going to go get Elisha. If Elisha's the problem, I'm going to chase him down and kill him. And it was told to him, behold, he's in Dothan. And he, the king, sent horses and chariots and a very great army there. And they came by night and they surrounded the whole city. And when the attendant of the man of God had risen up early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was encircling the city, and his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? That's a question I ask regularly. I end up in situations in my life where I just say, what am I going to do? I love the answer that Elisha gives him here. Verse 16, so he answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those that are with them. There is such a large army that they are completely encircling the city with horses, with chariots, ready to go to war just to capture and kill one man. And when his attendant comes to him, and says, look at this massive army out here. We're certainly done for. What are we going to do? The answer from Elisha is, why are you worried about it? Those that are with us are more than those that are out there. In what way? I mean, look around. At that moment, the servant to Elisha is saying, Look, there's this army, and there's just you and me, and we can't put up much of a fight. What are we going to do? And the truth that the servant did not know was that there was this whole army protecting them. Verse 17, then Elisha prayed and said, Oh, Lord, I pray, open his eyes so that he may see. We assume that this guy didn't walk around bumping into walls. We assume that he could physically see. He was, after all, attending to Elisha. We assume he had the capacity to physically see, but he couldn't see what was really going on. That's why I started this morning by saying, I have no idea what's going on, and neither do you, because we don't have the ability to see what's going on in the spiritual realm all the time. And so Elisha prayed, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes so that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Okay, so why did I read that this morning? Because what we're about to read in the book of Revelation is stuff that we've never seen, that we really genuinely just don't know. The world just does not know, does not comprehend what is going on, the warfare that is going on in the spiritual realm. Paul tells us things like we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, who are apparently under the princes, and against the rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places. We look at what's going on in the world, we look at it with our physical eyes, and we say, this makes no sense. How is this happening right now? This is absolutely crazy, and I'm not just talking about what's going on politically in America. I'm talking about in the whole wide world, there is famine going on right now. There is pestilence going on right now. There is certainly war and rumors of more war rumors of even a third world war out there. There's all this craziness going on in the planet. The leaders of the world don't seem to know what to do about the overarching poverty in so much of the world. And so we ask, how are we going to get through this? We don't even know that the reason that we're dressed right now, that we're in our right mind, that we had something to eat, that we even have a Bible in front of us, that we're meeting together here today, that we have the capability of singing, that we have the welcome to go and pray to God, that we have the Word of God in our hands. We don't even realize that all of that is a result of the constant blessings of God that are being poured out on us spiritually via His Holy Spirit, and yet there is this warfare of all these demonic forces that are ruling this world but this world cannot overwhelm or overtake the church because the gates of hell cannot prevail against it because Jesus is busy building his church at this very moment all of that is going on right now and we don't see it we see the cup of coffee in front of us we see the book we're looking at at this moment. We see the TV show we're watching. We're not even aware that if it were not for the constant intervention of the princes of God, the angelic hosts of God protecting us, we'd have been sifted like wheat years ago. We'd have been completely overtaken were it not for the preserving power of God. That's why we talk about protective angels. That's why we say that angels will watch over our children as they sleep. Where did we get that idea? Where did we get that concept? It's because passages like this that we just read out of 2 Kings, Elisha says, there's this angelic army around us that is going to protect us, that is more than the army that has come to hurt us, and you don't know it, and you don't see it, but it exists. That's my point. There are all of these heavenly things that exist, that we're just simply not conscious of. So I'm hoping that by bringing it up, it will raise our consciousness not only of the fact that the terrible, ridiculous, and stupid things that are going on in the world today are the result of principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places. These are demonic things that are going on in the world right now. And those demonic things would completely overwhelm us If it weren't for the fact that God has sent his angels to protect us, we just don't see them. You got it? Now, as we've been going through these individual trumpets, it's been going from bad to worse, bad to worse, bad to worse. And just about the moment you think, well, that's about as bad as it gets, it gets worse. We're going to start in Revelation chapter 9, verse 13 this morning. And the sixth angel and his trumpet. And so you may read these things and ask, well, if we're not going to be here, why does this matter? Why are we going through this? What's the point of knowing all these things? Why would God write these things down? I hope that as you... Read these things as you recognize how horrible, how truly terrible it's going to be, that it will bring you to a greater appreciation for the fact that you have been saved, that you are being protected, and that God is on your side. And if God be for us, who can be against us? Because it's about to get bad. That was all introduction. Revelation 9, verse 13. And the sixth angel sounded. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Several times we have seen this altar that is before God. It is used as an incense altar. It also seems to be an altar that the souls of the martyrs are crying out from under. And then there's mention of the four horns of the altar here. That was one of the characteristics of both the sacrificial altar and the altar of incense in the Old Testament. In Exodus 30, verse 2, we're told the specific dimensions of the altar, its length will be a cubit, its width a cubit, it's going to be square, its height will be two cubits, and its horns shall be of the same piece. Okay, those horns are raised up corners on the four corners of the top of the altar, Verse 10 of Exodus 30 tells us, Aaron shall make atonement on those horns once a year. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year throughout your generations. It's most holy to Yahweh. So the way that the altar was sanctified every year during the Feast of Atonement was that the high priest would sacrifice an animal and take the blood of that sacrificial animal and spread it on the horns of the altar. And by putting sacrificial blood on the horns of the altar, that would sanctify it so that it was most holy to Yahweh, meaning that it couldn't be used for any other purpose because it belonged to God and God alone. That's the place from which John hears the voice. And John tells us specifically from the horns of the altar, which is the very specific place that the high priest would sanctify that altar. So we know that this is a sanctified, holy voice that's rising up as the sixth angel is sounding. And a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound in the river Euphrates. Last week, we saw demon locusts rising up out of the bottomless pit, the abyss. We have no idea where that is. We have no idea. Well, we have some idea how deep it is. It's bottomless. We looked at that at some length last week. But now here's this other place, the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River runs through the middle of the Middle East right now. It still exists. And there are demons who are being held below the Euphrates River. I got a text this week from Micah who mentioned that. And I wrote back and said, gives you some idea why it's so crazy over there. Because there are actually demons that God has stored under the Euphrates River, and in a moment we're going to find out that they're placed there for this specific moment in time, this specific moment in history when they are going to do the exact evil that God has determined they're going to do. That's why they exist. The voice from the altar says to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who were bound in the great river Euphrates. We suppose they must be fallen angels. The four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year. God knew exactly when he was going to let them out. Now if God knows from the time that he put them there in the first place, which we know nothing about again. Again, we know nothing. There's so little that we actually know. We don't know when they were placed there, what the circumstances were, but when God placed them there, he started a calendar which said on a particular year, and a particular month, and a particular day, at a particular hour, I'm going to let them back out. Now, was there any chance any possibility that the machinations of humans on planet earth and the course of human history could change that date at all? No. I mean, we talk about the sovereignty of God sometimes in the micro, and we say that God is in charge of our lives and the day and the hour of our salvation and that he has chosen us from the foundation of the world. But now, This shows you that God is also that sovereign in the macro, that he's in charge of absolutely everything that is happening in world history so that the calendar that he is on can be narrowed down to an exact year, month, day, hour, and that he would release the demons exactly on time because he knew when he put them there that this was the moment when he was going to let them out. That is astounding sovereignty. I heard a prayer this morning on the radio, as I was pulling in the driveway here, of a local radio broadcast, a local very Arminian preacher. His inspiration that we should pray more was, when we pray, we give God the opportunity to work his will on earth as it is in heaven. And by quoting that little bit of the Lord's Prayer, it seemed to give it some kind of theological credibility. You don't give God an opportunity to work his will on the earth. This verse alone should prove that to you. That he is going to let these demons who have been under the Euphrates, he is going to release them at the exact moment in time, that he determined he was going to release them. And there was nobody in the text who was praying, please God, release the demons from the Euphrates. He was doing exactly what he wanted to do at exactly the time that he had determined that it was going to be done. That is a really, really sovereign God. And as I keep saying, you want God to be that sovereign because that same God who can do that kind of thing with that kind of specificity is the same God who wrote your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life. And you're going to hope when it's your time that he is exactly that specific. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, and the day, and the month, and the year, were released so that they might kill a third of mankind. That's why God released them. In a moment, we're going to find out that they also have a massive army. Okay, so let's talk numbers for just a moment. On Friday, I went to the website The worldometer, are you familiar with that, the worldometer? The worldometer keeps constant track, moment by moment, of the population of planet Earth. I wanted to find out what the current population of planet Earth was. So at 5.45 in the afternoon, because it keeps changing, 5.45 in the afternoon on Friday, May 6th, the current population of the Earth was 7,945,256,210 people. It's changed since then because births are currently outpacing deaths and the population grows about 200,000 a day. In other words, at this moment, we're just about to crest 8 billion people. On planet Earth. Okay, well, that will help us to do the math if we just round it off to 8 million, because I did the math using the number 7,945,256,210 people. Back in Revelation 6, verses 7 and 8, we read that a quarter of the people were going to be killed because of the plagues, the first plagues that God poured out. A quarter of the people would be 1,986,314,052.5 people. I'm not sure how the half guy dies. So let's just round that up to 158 at the end there. In other words, if we round it up to 8 billion people on the planet in the first plague that God pours out, where a quarter of the people on planet Earth die, that's 2 billion people. That's 2 billion people. You got to feel for that? And then the third of that remainder that is left over is 1,986,314,000. And 52 people, it's actually 52.68. So I'm going to round that up to 53. In other words, in great big numbers, 8 billion people on the planet would be cut down by the first plague to 6 billion people. Cut down by a third is cut down to 4 billion people. So that's exactly half of what we started with. And this is all happening in a very compressed period of time. The three and a half years where God is beginning to pour out his wrath. Can you imagine what planet Earth is going to be like when four billion people are dead? We're not going to have time to bury them. You're not going to have the wherewithal to keep up with the amount of death. And that is why in Matthew 24, Jesus said in describing this time of judgment and tribulation, He said, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be again. If you want to test that, tell me the last time that four billion people were killed en masse. That hasn't happened yet, and yet Jesus says it's going to be a time of such great tribulation That it's going to be unlike anything that has ever happened. I mean, we've had wars. We've had world wars. We've had plagues like the Black Plague that have killed millions. And when we hear millions, we think, wow, that was really, really bad. Four billion. So you can see why Jesus would say, and if those days had not been cut short, no life would be saved. Boy, that's a fact. But for the elect's sake, those days will be cut short. So there is judgment from God that Jesus predicted as judgment from God, and there's preservation from God because the elect aren't going to die. They're going to be preserved by the same God who is bringing about the horror, the pandemonium that is going to result from the plagues and then from this great army we're about to read about. Okay, I'm back in Revelation 9. Verse 15, the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released so that they might kill a third of mankind. And the number of the armies of the horsemen We're not told anything about them. They're just introduced at that moment that suddenly there's an army full of horsemen. Apparently, they are also being released from the Euphrates. They are part of this phase of God's judgment. Verse 16, And the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million, and I heard the number of them, 200 million demonic horsemen, and the result of their work is a grand total of four billion people dead. Can't even begin to imagine that, which is why I started out by saying, I don't know what's going on, and either do you. But God knows all of this, and it is so reassuring to know that good, and great, and gracious, and kind, and loving, sovereign God is in charge of even this, because These armies, these horsemen, these four fallen demonic rulers are all under the hand of God. And guess where they end up? Lake of fire. God could have put them in the lake of fire the minute they fell. He could have done that. He could have put Satan in the lake of fire the minute Satan fell. But he didn't. Why didn't he? Because they serve his purpose, which is why they have. A year and a month and a day and an hour because God knows exactly what he's doing with this planet. I don't know. You don't know. He knows exactly what he's doing. If you think for a moment, you know, tell me which year, which month, which week, which day, which hour. When is that going to happen? You don't know. We don't know. God knows. This is all stuff that God has determined since before the foundation of the world. Okay, so let's talk about this number 200 million for a moment. That's the NASB rendering of it. It is actually Dismurius Murius in the Greek language. So it is twice an uncountable number times an uncountable number. And so the translators went with 200 million here, but the NIV and the ESV and the King James all render it as 200,000 thousand because they translate "murias" as thousand each time. Some translations also say twice 10,000 times 10,000 or the Berean Literal Bible says twice 10,000, More modern translations go with 200 million. I'm old enough that I remember, I don't know if anybody else remembers this moment in time, but I was alive in 1965. Anyone else, anyone want to testify with me? Anyways, in 1965, Time Magazine, May 21st, 1965 edition, I looked it up, claimed that Red China had a standing army that they could raise for the war of 200 million. And so once China said that, suddenly people started saying, well, that's biblical. That's prophetic. Of course, that was also 1965. And so ever since then, There have been books published trying to rationalize the things that are said in the book of Revelation, like we talked about last week, how people want to take these unfamiliar concepts and make them more familiar by comparing them to things that we actually know, and so the demon locusts become helicopters. Jeff showed me a picture last week after service of the KISS helicopter, which has a face on the front of it, and he said, you mean like this? And... There's no reason to think that these horsemen and these horses are anything other than demonic forces coming up out of the Euphrates. In a minute, we're going to read a description of the horses, and they are clearly unlike any horses you know or have ever seen. For instance, there is not a horse yet that has a tail with a head with which he harms people. That horse doesn't exist, and yet that's the horse that's about to be described. We don't need to try to familiarize the language we're about to read. All we need to do is accept that these are demonic forces that God is unleashing, and that there are going to be roughly 200 million of them, or 200,000 times a 1,000, or... 200 times an uncountable number times an uncountable number. What we know is it's just going to be a massive army that's going to do a massive amount of damage. Here's how John describes them. Verse 17 And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth, and of brimstone, so basically red and dark blue and yellow. And the heads of the horses are like heads of lions. Anybody seen any lion-headed horses lately? No. I mean, even at the circus, even at the sideshow, anybody seen any lion-headed horses? No. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. And now Jennifer's really happy that she doesn't have any horses like that. Out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone and it's a deadly fire and a deadly smoke and deadly brimstone because verse 18 says, and a third of mankind, anthropoi, that means men and women, all mankind, were Killed by these plagues, by the fire, and the smoke, and the brimstone, which proceeded out of their mouth. Demonic horses. Last week, demonic locusts. This week, demonic horses with demonic riders. Verse 19, for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them, they do harm. Okay, everything about that is unlike anything we know or have ever seen or have ever experienced. Again, that's why I began the morning by saying, I don't know what's going on, and neither do you, because this all exists in the spiritual realm. At this moment, that is all bound up in the Euphrates River, and it is going to be unleashed on the planet. The rest of mankind, verse 20 says, the rest of mankind, that remaining 4 billion, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons. They're being attacked by demons. They're being wiped out by demons. And they continue their demonic worship rather than repent and worship God. Do I have to prove total depravity to you in order for you to understand the depth of the darkness of these people? I've said it several times now, if all it takes is adequate inducement to get a man to make a decision for God, these people have more than adequate inducement. They have already lived through. People running for the caves and the rocks and the dens and saying, fall on us. They have already lived through the judgment of God that has stopped the winds and brought a scorching heat and then destroyed the food supply and the water supply. They've already lived through demonic locusts that sting and men want to die, but they cannot die yet. They've already lived through armies of demonic horses and horsemen who have smoke and fire and brimstone out of their mouth and serpent-like tails with heads that do harm and do damage, that collectively kill half the people on planet Earth, and they still don't repent. But I assure you, if you were left to yourself, you wouldn't repent either. That's how dark you actually are. That should give you some sense of how sinful you actually are. That should give you some idea the depth of your own depravity. And that should give you some idea of the astounding grace, the astounding love, the astounding long-suffering of God himself who would not only choose you before the foundation of the world, but then put up with you this long and then change you from within, and then protect you from all this. The grace of God is so far-reaching, so much wider, so much broader than we can possibly conceive of, I think sometimes we, we get so comfortable with the concept of grace, we become so familiar with the concept of grace, that we forget the broad, sweeping, overarching depth and height and breadth of the love and the grace of God who took somebody who would not repent, even in the face of demonic death. I mean, pretty much everybody on planet Earth at some point in life has heard there's probably some kind of afterlife. Maybe There's maybe something out there. And yet that concept of the possibility of punishment, that possibility of death, hell, and the grave, isn't enough to make them bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And yet we read, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everybody in heaven, on earth, below the earth, everybody is going to once and for all admit that Jesus Christ is Lord Here, they have just seen widespread, overarching death. I I don't know if I can yell it for more emphasis. I don't know if I can keep repeating it for more emphasis. This is horrible. Everything about this is disastrous and terrifying. And men don't repent. Because that's what men are like. And God saved you. Amazing. amazing grace. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads. And with them they do harm. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. So as not to worship demons and so as not to worship their idols of gold and silver and brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders nor their sorceries nor their immorality nor their thefts. They didn't see anything wrong with themselves. Now, if you think that you're pretty much okay, and if you have that really astounding human ability to justify yourself no matter what's happening in life. Think about the level of justification that's going on here. This has to be people who are saying, well, yeah, half the planet died, but they deserved it. They were clearly and obviously worse than me because I didn't die. Therefore, I'm going to go back and worship my idol, which John says here are just demons That's all that these idols and these other gods are, are just demons that desire worship. And humans continue to worship their idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which God says yet again, and God describes them this way all the way through the Bible. They can't see, they can't think, they can't do anything for you, they can't even walk. If you want your God to go to a different room, you have to pick him up and carry him. God is drawing a distinction between all those other idols and himself, which is why he would say, I am. I am because I am. I am the God that is. All the other gods that you are worshiping are not. And how does he prove that they are not? You made them, you carved them, you carry them. They can't hear, they can't see, they can't speak, and they're no help to you. But you'll bow down to them, and you'll worship them, and you won't repent and worship the God who actually is, who is pouring out his wrath at this very moment. Wow, what depravity. And I stress again, and such were all of us. Were it not for the fact that Christ died for us, cleansed us, indwelt us, we'd be just like these people. They did not repent of their murders, or of their sorceries, or of their immorality, nor of their thievery. Chapter 10, verse 1, and I saw... I'm going to stress one more time, Uh, it's real obvious here, John keeps using kai, 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 and, 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 sometimes kai hutos, and then, and then, and then. John is laying all this out in sequence, and that's a, a characteristic of the whole book that John keeps laying out these sequential words, and then, and then, and then. And that's going to become really important when we get to chapter 19 and chapter 20, so I just want to point it out right now to kind of give you coming attractions, a little bit of a foreshadow of what we're heading toward. And I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven clothed with a cloud And a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. Commentators have argued through the years that this is probably Christ. Certainly the description sounds very Christ-like. The fact that he has a rainbow upon his head, which is how God is described a couple of times in the Old Testament... The fact that his face shines like the sun and that his feet are like burnished brass or here like pillars of fire. So this may be Christ, but then he's also going to stand in a way that hearkens all the way back to the book of Daniel. He had, verse 2, he had in his hand a little book which was open, a little scroll, but it wasn't sealed, importantly. It was an open scroll. And he placed his right foot on the sea and he placed his left foot on the land. In other words, he's above everything. He's standing over everything. He's taking jurisdiction over absolutely everything. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out. The seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. And when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write it, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them, hence the t-shirt, I want to know what the thunder said. And notice that God is under no obligation or compunction to tell us everything. I don't know what's going on. You don't know what's going on. John got a little glimpse of one piece of it. God said, not that. I really wonder what John heard. I look forward to the day when we get to find out what John actually heard. Because John saw it as so important that he felt he needed to write it down. And then a voice from heaven says, don't write that. In other words, no matter how smart you think you are, no matter how biblically grounded you think you are, you don't know everything that God has ever revealed to anybody else. You only know what God has allowed you to know. And in fact, God has only written in his word what we need to know for right now. The Bible is sufficient to get us from here to our eternal home. But when we get there, we're going to find out how much we don't know. Because we don't know a whole bunch. We don't know anything about eternity. Because that's not what is important right now. God is telling us right now what we need to know right now. And we need to know right now that Christ is our Savior. We need to know right now that his finished work is sufficient to pay our sin debt and get us all the way home to the home that he is preparing for us in his father's house. You need to know that right now. Do you need to know what the thunder said? Apparently not, because you're going to make it all the way to eternity without ever knowing that, because there's stuff that God just doesn't tell us. But that just raises my curiosity. I, I'm like a kid who, when you take away the one toy he's not playing with, he's like, I want that toy. I could read through the whole Bible and say, really? Great stuff. Oh, so interesting, so fascinating. What? The thunder said something that we know. I want to know that now. Or is that just me? No. <laughs> when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write those things. It makes me think of the book of Daniel, Daniel 8, 26. When God said to Daniel, the vision of the evenings and the mornings which has been told to you is true, but as for you, keep that vision a secret because it pertains to many days in the future God can show things to people and then say but don't tell anybody else keep that to yourself Daniel twelve four. but as for you Daniel keep these words secret and seal up the book until the end of time and men will run to and fro knowledge will increase verse 5 and the angel whom I saw standing on the sea And on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there shall be delay no longer. As bad as things have been so far, this Christ-like angelic being, standing on the sea and on the land, raises his right hand in an act of swearing to God and swears to him who lives forever and ever, the very one who created heaven, who created earth, who created the sea and everything that exists on the planet, swore to him that there'd be no more delay. Delay what? It's been really bad up until now, and apparently the worst of it hasn't happened yet, and there is still delay. Keep your finger right there for just a moment. We'll get back here in a moment. Turn to Daniel chapter 12, because there's a very interesting image in Daniel chapter 12 that I want you to see. Daniel chapter 12, oh, okay, I'm going to read most of it. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. He's talking about the end times. He's talking about this very moment we're reading about, this time of tribulation, this time of distress for Israel and for the world. For there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. That's exactly like what I've been saying this morning. This time of trouble such as never was, ever would be again, because it's a time of the wrath of God and phenomenal death as a result of both demons and plagues. It's unlike anything that's ever happened in the history of the world. Daniel is describing the same thing. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, some to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. We're going to hear about that when we get to chapter 20. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead many to righteousness will be like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel... Conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. And then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing, one on this side, on this bank of the river and the other on the other bank of the river. And one said to the man who was dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be? until the end of these wonders. And I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, as he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and swore by him who lives forever, that it would be for a time and times and half a time, that's three and a half years, and as soon as they finished shattering the power of the holy people, all these events Will be completed. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. Many will be purged and purified and refined, but the wicked will still act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. Isn't that what we just read? Even in the midst of all this demonic activity, they still don't repent. They still don't worship the God of heaven because they're wicked and they don't have any understanding, says Daniel. Verse 11, and from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains until 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way to the end, and then you will enter into your rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. So, all I'm trying to show you is that the imagery that John is seeing is very much like what Daniel saw in his vision, And of course it would be, because it's the same God talking about the same time period, talking about the same judgment on the same earth, and both of them agree that wicked people aren't going to get it. And yet the redeemed are going to be protected, are going to be preserved, are going to be kept and that is promised in the Old Testament, in Daniel, that is promised in the New Testament, in Revelation, and in Matthew 24, and in pretty much the whole rest of the Bible. That God makes distinction between the wicked and the evil of this world. And he's going to leave them in their ignorance, and they're going to die in their sin, and they're going to be judged in their sin. And you're not going to be among them. And oh, thank God. And back in Revelation, let's close it up. For the morning. Verse 5, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven, just like Daniel saw, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days Of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants, the prophets. So there is John in the book of Revelation, and there is the angel of God testifying that everything that we read in the Old Testament. Through the prophets of God, everything we read in the New Testament through Jesus, the ultimate prophet of God, every word that we have seen in the Bible is testified to yet again and again and again, and it keeps proving itself. And here at the end of time, even as God is pouring out his wrath, he points back to his own word and says, And I said this was going to happen. This is just exactly like I said was going to happen. This is no surprise to anybody. Nobody gets to say, I didn't know. Nobody gets to say, God's being mean or harsh on me, and how come I didn't get a chance? God has already prophesied through his prophets that his judgment is coming and what his judgment looks like and the parallels between Daniel and Ezekiel and so many other, the book of Joel, so many of the Old Testament prophecies that the book of Revelation testifies to, and here you have God himself saying, through my prophets, I've already told you that I was going to do all of this. And that Christ-like, angelic being raises his hand to heaven and swears, it won't be long now. You want to be on the right side of that. Christianity, I say again, is about so much more than here and now. And if you got to suffer a little bit here and now to be on the right side when it all wraps up, worth it. Whatever the struggles, whatever the difficulties of this life are, God's doing it for his glory and for your ultimate benefit because all these things are working together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. But the wicked are going to continue in their wickedness and are not going to repent because they can't. And you can. And thank God. Amen. I think we should sing, I need thee every hour.